Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 38 through 41 this evening. That's Mark 9, 38 through 41. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and this evening we come to a conversation between our Lord and his disciples concerning the topic of accepting others who follow the Lord Jesus. You know, as, as conservative Christians, as we are, I don't know why else you would be here if you're not one, unless you're visiting, and we're glad to have you. Um, but as conservative Christians, and especially as Reformed Christians, as this congregation is, a Reformed Baptist church, we hate error. We do. We hate error. Within the universal body of Christ, you could say that the Reformed tradition is kind of the watchdog part of the church. At least that's how I tend to look at it. We hate theological error. We hate loose morality. We love the word of God. We love the law of God, and rightfully so. Right? We should hate theological error, and we should hate immorality. And we, as the watchdog types, tend to draw lines everywhere. Right? Lines with regard to doctrine and practice. And that's good. I like lines. Right? I know a lot of you out here, you do too. I actually like denominations. That's good. That means that we care about truth. We shouldn't be mean to one another, as we'll see throughout the rest of the sermon, right? But denominations are good. It means that we actually care about what the Word of God says. So again, line drawing is good. There are lines that cannot be crossed if someone is to call himself or herself a Christian. Truth matters. Lines are good. There is a line between the church and the world that must be uh, observed and maintained. There, there are lines, the church exists to proclaim the truth of God and honor him in all that we do. But with that line drawing and watchdog demeanor comes the possibility of falling into an error. And it's a pretty big deal, this error. It's the sin of sectarianism. Now, sectarianism, maybe that's a new word for some of you. Sectarianism is the belief that only your group, only your sect, are the only real Christians that you're the only ones doing anything right, and everyone else should join you or they're not really part of the kingdom of God. Sectarianism is when we think that we're the only Christians and everyone else is dumb, unbelieving maybe, should stop doing ministry completely, be ashamed of themselves, etc. You get the idea. And I think if you've ever been around a group of reform people for more than 30 minutes after a theological topic is introduced, you know what I'm talking about. Keely Walashek is about to burst right now from laughing. Um, some of you don't know the history. I, I, she let me know that I was a little bit too uh, zealous for my tradition, and it was a good thing that she helped me to see. Um, but our tradition, uh, Reformed tradition, can legitimately be some of the worst kinds of sectarian jerks on the planet. We can. Actually, uh, amongst other Christian traditions, that's what we're known for a lot of the time, Reformed people are, sadly. Now, on the one hand, there are many, many churches that need to hear that doctrine matters, right? There, there are many churches that don't believe that there are any lines to draw, and they think that anyone who claims to be a Christian is a Christian, and that any group that claims to be a church is a church. There are many churches that don't have any problems fellowshipping with and teaming up with rank heretics or teaming up with churches that are known for promoting absolutely wicked, sinful, and shameful living. There are many churches that need to hear the truth that doctrine matters, holiness matters, and they need to stand up for Christ, man up, and draw some lines in the sand. 
but other churches. Like churches in our tradition, Reformed and Reformed Baptist churches often need to hear a different message. A message that says, stop drawing so many lines with regard to who you will fellowship with. Stop thinking that there is nothing good to be found in any other traditions. Stop thinking that you're the only Christians. Stop thinking that other churches don't have anything to offer. Stop thinking that you're the only ones doing anything good for the kingdom. And that's a message that we need to hear from time to time. Because of our great zeal for truth, our desire for things to be done according to the word of God, our our, uh, uh, seriousness about striving for holiness of living, because of those things, we can easily fall into the trap of having little to no love for people who do not agree with us on every secondary and tertiary issue. We can fall into that trap. We can become quite hardened and unreceptive toward those who are not part of our group. And that's what our text this evening centers upon. It's this idea of receiving people who aren't part of our group. And also rejoicing in anyone or any group who we find are making much of the name of Jesus and pointing others to him. This text that we're about to look at is about how we should never be more narrow than our Lord is when it comes to who he will accept as his people. So that's where we're driving this evening. And may God bless us as we consider his word. Now, if you would and you're able, please stand with me for the reading of his inspired, inerrant, and infallible word, the word of God. Mark chapter 9, verses 38 through 41. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you once again and ask that you would minister to us this evening as we sit under your word. Please have mercy on us and show us where we might be hard and harsh toward our brothers and sisters. Please teach us to receive the ones whom you receive as your own. Teach us to love the way that our Lord loves. Take your holy word and plant it deep down in our hearts so that we may be changed into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so some context to begin. Our passage this evening is a a continuation of the conversation that Jesus began with his disciples Uh, back in verses 33 through 37, and it was a conversation about true greatness. And in that conversation that we studied last week, we saw the Lord Jesus redefine greatness as humbly serving and receiving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And at the end of that passage, Jesus says in verse 37, whoever receives one such child, and you'll remember that child represents a believer, This child represents a Christian. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So Jesus is telling his disciples and us that we are to receive our brothers and sisters. We are to welcome those who love our Lord. 
So then, in light of this teaching, looking at verse 38 of our text, I think the Apostle John, the one who speaks on behalf of the disciples in our passage, I think he has his conscience pricked a little bit. I think so. I think he's feeling bad about something that he and the other disciples had done concerning someone who claimed to be a follower of Jesus, one of these little ones that Jesus had spoken about in verse 37. And so John tells Jesus what happened. He tells Jesus about a time where the 12 did not receive someone who was doing miracles in the name of Christ. He tells Jesus about a time when they did not receive someone who also loved Jesus. And I think that what John's doing here is he's half confessing that they had done wrong, <laughs> uh, kind of. Uh, but at the same time, he's trying to get Jesus to give an assessment of what they did, whether it was right or wrong. So he just tells them, hey, there was this time we did this, right? So John, with a tender conscience, speaks up and tells Jesus what happened. And that's where we begin in verse 38. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting, demons, or casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, we're going to spend a decent bit of time on verse 38. We're not given a, a ton of information about what happened. What you have in your Bible is what I have in mine. <laughs> right, there's not a ton of information here in verse 38. But what we can see from John's statement is that at some point in the past, prior to this conversation, when Jesus wasn't around, because John is informing Jesus of what happened, the twelve had encountered a man who was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Now, casting out demons in Jesus' name implies a number of things. Uh, first, it implies that this man was claiming to act with the authority of Christ. He was acting in Jesus' name. That is, this man was not trying to glorify himself, right? But was actually making much of Jesus by acknowledging that the demons were to come out because of who Jesus is, not because of who he is. So it's because of Jesus' authority, his name, that the demons were to obey and come out. And that's what the man was proclaiming as he did these exorcisms. So he's acting in the authority of Christ. Second, this man was claiming to act on behalf of Christ in his name. He was claiming to be doing things that Jesus approved of and wanted his followers to do. And we see indeed, Mark chapter 6, Jesus sent the 12 out to cast out demons. Right? He gave them authority to do so. Um, so this actually is something that Jesus wants at least the 12 to do. Uh, maybe this man had seen uh, Jesus' disciples doing this. But this man's claiming that he's doing something that Jesus wants his followers to do. Um, so this man, my point is, he did, not want, uh, he did not believe that he was doing this for himself or on his own initiative. But rather he viewed himself as teaming up with and working for the Lord Jesus. He's doing it in his name. So again, this man is casting out demons for the glory of Christ. And third, this man was truly um, accessing the power of Christ. Why do I say that? Well, the text says he was successful in casting out demons. He wasn't trying to cast them out. The disciples were trying to make him stop, but the text doesn't say he was trying to cast out demons. It says he was actually doing it. Right? He's actually successful in casting these demons out. And in light of what Jesus said to his disciples in Mark chapter 9, verses 19 and 29, about faith and prayer being necessary in order to cast out demons, we must then conclude that this man was a believer. He's exercising faith in Christ. He's praying in the name of Christ that this demon would come out. So again, that's how he's doing all this. So he's actually accessing um, the power of Christ here. So to summarize... We see that this man was 
acting in the authority of Christ, on behalf of Christ, and seems to be a true believer. Seems to be a genuine believer. In fact, there's nothing in this text whatsoever that would make us think that this man was not a believer. Jesus himself, if you look at verse 39, actually affirms that this man was doing mighty works, that is, miracles. Jesus affirms that this man's mighty works, these miracles are legitimate and were actually being done in his name and so uh, should be received. So Jesus' own statements tell us that we should believe that this man was one of his people. Now, as to this man's identity, we have no clue. Not, not a clue. But considering that he's a believer, he had to have come into contact with the teaching of Christ. right? Uh, some of your old commentaries, like the Puritans, um, would argue that this man was possibly a disciple of John the Baptist uh, and had believed what John taught about Jesus being the Messiah. This is the one I told you was coming, who's greater than me. right? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Maybe this man was a disciple of John and had heard John's preaching about Jesus and believed. Uh, maybe this man was one of the 70 that Jesus commissioned to cast out demons earlier in his ministry. Or maybe he was just some dude from a village who had believed Jesus' message when he heard it. And though he did not leave his home and physically follow Jesus, he began to truly, in his life, follow Christ. But regardless, what I'm trying to stress to you is that all signs point to this man being a believer. He had heard something about Christ. He had heard the, Christ's message proclaimed, Christ's identity, Christ's identity proclaimed to some degree, and he believed. Right? And now he's acting in faith to promote Christ and his kingdom. Now, we're not told that he was out preaching. Rather, he was doing the good work of casting out demons. But still, even, even with that, I want us to recognize that this man was making much of the name of Christ. Making much of his name. Here's what I mean. With every exorcism that he performed, this man was declaring the authority of Jesus and expressing his faith in him. With every demon cast out, the man was pointing the formerly possessed person to Jesus as the source of his healing. With every exorcism, he was declaring that Jesus had authority over the unclean spirits, which means that Jesus is not like any ordinary rabbi. And it would have been clear, I would imagine, to every onlooker who witnessed this man performing these exorcisms, that this man wanted them to believe what he believed about Jesus. Bottom line, what I want you to see is that this man is glorifying Jesus Christ in his words and his actions. And those are great things. This man was serving Christ even though he was not part of the group of the twelve disciples. Now, quickly, we don't know anything about his theology. We don't. I got verse 38. It's all you got to. We don't know anything about this guy's theology or how precisely he understood the identity of Jesus. I, I would wager uh, this man had a lot to learn because the 12 did too. <laughs> right? But I would imagine that even compared to the 12, this guy had a lot to learn. And the disciples probably had a leg up on him in many ways and probably could have corrected many errors within this guy's thinking. But we do know that this man's genuine and mighty service for Christ marked him as a follower of Jesus. He was clearly promoting Christ and his kingdom. He was clearly bringing glory to the name of Jesus. But what did the twelve do? Did they rejoice in what they saw? 
Did they smile and praise God that the name of Christ was being proclaimed even by a novice? No. John said, we tried to stop him. And why? Because he was not following us. Or Luke chapter 9, verses 49 and 50 is the parallel text. Because he was not following with us. It's not because this man was teaching any heresy. It's not because this man was blaspheming Christ. It wasn't because he was telling people to ignore Jesus. It wasn't because he was doing immoral, ungodly things in between exorcisms. No, it was nothing like that at all. The only reason that we're given in the text for why he tried to stop him is simply because he was not following us. That is, because he was not one of the twelve. Because he was not part of their group. That's the only reason that we're given in the text. Brothers and sisters, that is the sin of sectarianism. They did not rejoice at all in what this man was doing. They weren't glad that demons were actually coming out of people and that sinners were going free. They were not glad that in some way Christ was being proclaimed as supreme and powerful to save. They weren't glad that the name of Jesus was being lifted up before unbelievers. They weren't glad at all. They just wanted the man to stop because he wasn't part of their group. They completely ignored the fact that all signs pointed, to, I can't stress that enough, all signs pointed to this man being a believer. And they ignored all of it. They ignored the reality of his success in casting out demons. Like they acknowledged, yes, he was actually doing it. But what, what would that imply about this man? They ignored every good thing about the man and what he was doing simply because he wasn't part of their group. They did not receive him like Jesus tells us we're supposed to do to our brothers and sisters in verse 37. Instead, they tried to shun him and stop him from doing anything else. And brothers and sisters, I submit to you that we are guilty of the same thing in different ways. Right? We probably don't have the guts of the disciples who legitimately probably tried to stop him, uh, possibly physically. Right? We, we might not have that. Uh, we might not try to directly stop a professing Christian from doing something good in the name of Christ, but we can commit this sin in our hearts and with our mouths, and I know that we do. Let me give you some scenarios. Um, some of these are kind of funny because I know that they're going to resonate with some of you. Um, you work with someone of a different denomination. right? Maybe the person is Pentecostal or a conservative Methodist, or a free will Baptist, or a non-denominational Christian, which is my favorite thing, because that's turning into a denomination. They're all the same, all the non-denom churches are. Amen? Anyway, uh, that's personal annoyance. Uh, <laughs> right, you see, this sermon was for me. Um, and that person that you work with is bold to openly pray for people at work. Bold. Or, or bold to declare how good the Lord Jesus has been to them. Or bold to share what they've been reading in sacred scripture. Or bold to declare the necessity of sinners to repent and believe upon Christ or perish in hell. And they're bold in front of the unbelievers that you work with. But because they get some stuff wrong, even some bigger doctrine, because they're part of another tribe, you roll your eyes at them in your heart. And you're annoyed at them. And you look down on them. Maybe you even talk bad about them to your fellow church members, right? The other people who know just how wrong that they are, right? Or, or you, to your family, 
or you talk bad about them to your fellow coworkers, right? Jeff's dumb, right? Jeff's my made-up guy always. I'm sorry if you know anyone named Jeff, right? Jeff's dumb. People shouldn't listen to him. Jeff doesn't hardly know what he's talking about. Like, yeah, right? Like, you have that kind of an attitude. And instead of rejoicing in what they're doing right, instead of rejoicing in the good that they're doing to make much of the name of Christ, you focus on the fact that they don't belong to our group. Or maybe you find yourself feeling the same way, not necessarily toward any individual, but toward all the non-Calvinist churches in our area. Yeah. When someone tells you that they go to a generally orthodox church, but one with whom we disagree on a number of things with, you're not glad. You're not glad that they're at a generally orthodox conservative Christian church because they're not Calvinist. Instead, you get annoyed that they're going to one of those churches. Or you secretly wish that most of the churches in our area would go under, or maybe not so secretly. Even though many of them declare the same essentials of the faith and the same gospel of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. Or anytime you hear, God help us with this, anytime you hear of another church in our area doing anything to reach out to the community, you just criticize it to death instead of being glad that they're trying to do some good in the name of Christ or declare him in some way. No joy. But regardless, with whatever the situation might be, those are just two big examples. The attitude is the same if you're a sectarian. The best way I can put it is internal eye-rolling. Right? Frustration. You're not glad for anything any professing Christian or church does in the name of Christ to declare his gospel or do good works in his name unless it's someone or some church with whom we have fellowship with in the majority of doctrines, otherwise known as someone from our group. It doesn't matter whether or not the name of Christ is lifted up. It doesn't matter whether or not the signs point to the person being a true Christian or the church being an actual church. You don't care and you don't praise God or give him thanks for anything that they do. Instead, you just wish that they would stop. And that is quite a strong parallel between what was going on with the disciples and this man and us. But now let's see how our Lord feels about this kind of harsh attitude and lack of reception toward our fellow Christians. Verse 38, but Jesus said, do not stop him. Stop there. <laughs> do not stop him. Leave him alone. Leave the guy alone. Let him do his thing. Don't stop him. And Jesus, I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to pause here because Jesus uses the present tense here in the original when he says, do not stop him. That means he's saying, don't stop him or anyone like him that you meet with in the future. Don't ever stop anyone like this. Leave them alone. So this is a far-reaching commandment, not just for the 12 and this man who is casting out demons. It's for anyone who follows Jesus and anyone like this man forever. So he says, don't stop him. And then Jesus goes on from here to give three, four statements. Right, not the time signature. F-O-R. Right, three, four statements. In verses 39 through 41, four, four, four. He's gonna, these are explanatory statements. And Jesus is going to explain why the disciples should leave such people alone and let them do their ministry. And though, and I'll, I'll just be honest, you could probably plumb these truths deeper than I'm going to this evening. 
I just want to keep it as simple as I can because this, on, on the surface, these are simple, simple reasons why Jesus is saying don't stop such a person. The first statement for why people like that man should be left alone is this. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. As I said earlier, Jesus here is declaring that this man was actually doing a mighty work with the authority of and power of and on behalf of Jesus. He was genuine, not just sincerely trying, but actually approved of by Jesus. And Jesus says not to stop such a person because whoever does a miraculous work in his name will not be able to, right after, speak evil of Jesus. Such a person who does these kinds of works in the name of Jesus will not speak ill of him. Jesus' point is that this man and others like him will not say anything bad about him. That's, that's the most simple point here. This man and people like him aren't going to speak bad about Jesus. Quite the opposite, in fact. They will extol the name of Christ. They will lift the name of Christ high. This man wasn't trying to pull people away from following Jesus. Right? He wasn't blaspheming Jesus. No one, or rather, someone doing mighty works in the name of Jesus will make much of Jesus and point others to him. This man is of the same heart as the disciples. He's not a stranger to Christ. He's not an enemy of Christ who wants to discredit him. He's not going around doing miracles in the name of Jesus and then turning around trying to discredit him. If he was, why in the world was he, by faith and prayer, doing miracles in Christ's name so as to make Jesus great in the eyes of many? That doesn't make any sense. This man and those like him are of the same cause as the disciples. Right? They, they want people to glory in Christ. They celebrate the name of Christ. They don't oppose the name of Jesus. But again, rather, they make much of it. So there's no reason to stop this man or anyone like him. Christ is being glorified and held out to people. So leave such a person alone. Second, Jesus then goes on to give another reason for why people like this exorcist should not be stopped. Verse 40. For the one who is not against us is for us. The one doing mighty works in the name of Christ, the one glorifying Jesus, the one who points others to Jesus is not against Jesus. The person who's doing the same works, promoting the same truths of Jesus, and working to destroy the kingdom of Satan is definitely not against Christ. Even though such a person might not belong to the group of the twelve or our group, yet, inasmuch as they oppose the same common enemy that we do, Satan, and do not try to hinder us in our work, and do not try to keep people from Jesus, such a person should be counted as our friend and on our side. Even though we might not be part of the same group, that does not make us enemies. Anyone who is not against us is for us. John Gill said this, this is a proverbial expression signifying that all that are not against a man and take not the part of his enemy are to be accounted his friends. So then if a person is not against Christ, which means he's a believer, because elsewhere in Matthew 12, 30, Jesus says, if you're not with me, you're against me. <laughs> so if someone is not against Christ, a believer, and if a person does not take the side of the enemies of Christ, again, a believer, then they should be counted as our allies. 
in the work of the kingdom. They're for us. They're one of us. If they're not against us in Christ, then they must be for us. There is no middle ground. And if they're helping to make the name of Christ great, then they must be for us in our Lord. I know I'm laboring the point a bit, but I want to just drill this in. The one who is participating in the work of the kingdom, the one who is glorifying the name of Christ is our friend. May God help us to get that through our heads. Such a person is not our enemy because they're not against us. They're for us. Even if there are some disagreements or errors that need corrected in someone, that still does not mean that they are not for us. Even if they're not part of our group, they can still be on the side of Christ. And therefore, such a person should not be stopped or hindered in their work to point others to Christ and magnify his name. Lastly, our Lord gives a final reason that really highlights the principle in verse 40. Verse 41. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now this verse is a little difficult to see how it fits in with the rest of the passage. I acknowledge that, and there is some debate. Uh, but this is where I've landed. In this verse, Jesus is saying that if, some, that if someone does even the smallest thing to assist his disciples, even giving them a cup of water to drink, the smallest thing that you could do for someone, then that person is to be seen as a friend and an ally in the kingdom. But notice Jesus says, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ, because you're a Christian, will by no means lose his reward. And the only reason someone would help you specifically because you're a Christian is if they also love Jesus. There's no other reason for someone to help you because you belong to Christ. So then, I think the sense of Jesus' words are, are this. If anyone who loves me, I'm speaking as if I'm Jesus, bear with me, right? If anyone who loves me does even the smallest thing to help you in your work and ministry, whether it's giving you a cup of water or whether it's helping you do ministry by casting out demons, such a person should be considered your friend and your partner. Such a person is seen by Christ to be a lover of Christ and his people, and Jesus himself will take notice, and they will be rewarded for it. So they should be counted by us as our friends because Jesus counts them as our friends. We should count them as friends because Jesus is going to reward them, even if they're not part of our group. Whoever is not against us, whoever seeks to take part in the work of Christ's kingdom, from giving a cup of water to help us or to do something much bigger, such a person is for us, is our friend, and is a friend of Jesus Christ. So then, allow me to summarize the big picture of this whole passage and its general meaning for us. I want us to get the essence of this. The disciples tried to stop a man who was a believer, who was doing good works in the name of Christ, who was making much of Christ, who was glorifying Christ and doing good, good things for other people, and they tried to stop him because he wasn't part of their group. And Jesus says, don't ever try to stop someone like that. And they're to leave people like that alone because those kinds of people are glorifying Christ's name, pointing others to him, are not against him, but rather are for him and will be rewarded by him on the last day. 
And this tells the 12 back then and us today what kind of attitude that we should have toward our fellow believers who are not part of our group. We need to receive as our brothers and sisters in the Lord, as our co-laborers for Christ, all those who are doing biblically defined good works, who are pointing people to the biblical Jesus, and are making much of our mutual Lord Jesus Christ. We must receive these little ones like Jesus commanded us to do in verse 37. There's something I want to draw your attention to. I I I thought this was great. In verse 38, the disciples were making themselves the dividing line of who was in and who was out with regard to Christ. Us, the twelve. They thought they were the dividing line. But Jesus clarifies that for us in this passage. Jesus clarifies, no, he himself, Jesus Christ, is the dividing line. Verse 38 says, we tried to stop him because he wasn't following us. But in verse 39, Jesus says, he won't speak evil of me. Verse 40, Jesus says, such a person is not against us. Now Jesus is part of the us now. So he is the focus. Verse 41, Jesus says, they do a good thing to help us because we belong to him. Jesus is the dividing line in these situations, not us. Someone's relationship to Jesus is what determines whether or not they are on our side, not their relationship to our group. Whoever is following him, making much of him, pointing people to him, doing good works in his name, are in the kingdom and should be received by us who also follow him. Now let me take a few minutes and make some clarifications before we move into application. I'm sure you could smell some caveats coming. First, this passage is not telling us that doctrine doesn't matter. If it was, then these four verses contradict the whole rest of the Bible. And that's not what's going down here. God will not contradict himself. The word of God is not contradictory. This passage is not telling us that doctrine doesn't matter. There are doctrinal lines that, if crossed, means that you are outside the bounds of actual Christianity and cannot be counted amongst the brethren. There are essentials of the Christian religion that cannot be disagreed on without destroying the foundations of the faith and therefore making a new and false religion. We need to know that. Let me give you some examples. and This is not an exhaustive list. Again, doctrine matters. If someone is denying the doctrine of the Trinity, the the true humanity or divinity of Christ, the virgin birth of Christ, the sinlessness of Christ, the death and resurrection of Christ as the only means of atonement for our sins, that Christ was bodily raised on the third day, that Christ ascended to heaven, that Christ will return bodily, that there is a final judgment, that there are eternal realities of heaven and hell. If someone denies that the scriptures are inerrant, infallible, and inspired, and are the sole rule of faith and practice for the Christian. If someone denies that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any good works from us. If someone denies that Christ alone is the only way of salvation. If someone denies that regeneration and justification leads to holiness of living and repentance from sin. If someone rejects doctrines like that essential doctrines of our faith, then we can't have any fellowship with them because they have no fellowship with Jesus. If someone rejects, and listen, when I say reject, I don't mean they're ignorant. God help us to see that there's a difference in rejecting a doctrine and not understanding it. 
Because sadly, if you went to most professing Christians whom you would look at and say, that person loves the Lord Jesus and follows him, and you gave them a pop quiz on the doctrine of the Trinity, they're a heretic. <laughs> it's true. I don't mean ignorant. I don't mean needs more discipling. I mean, if someone rejects the central truths of our faith, then they are outside of the kingdom. And we have not excluded them. But they have excluded themselves by rejecting Christ and his gospel. So while we must accept Christian traditions outside of our particular theological tradition, which we do believe is the best, most clear expression of the biblical faith, while we must accept Christians outside of our particular tradition, there are still lines that cannot be crossed. Doctrine still matters very much. And the message that we should receive others outside of our group does not mean that truth does not matter. Second, this passage is not forbidding us to correct our brothers and sisters who have bad doctrine. On the, right? It's not telling us that we're not allowed to correct people who have poor doctrine on the non-essentials of the faith. The New Testament letters are full of corrections for, our, for us. No, not this, but this. To know that a believer is in doctrinal, moral, or practical error and not tell him or her is unloving. Now, a quick note here. Write this down, Reformed people. There is a gentle, calm, and gracious way to correct our fellow Christians. Remember that. Get that tattooed on your arm. <laughs> right? To, to correct someone with an arrogant or harsh attitude is sinful. Right? So there's a right way to correct somebody. But nevertheless, we have an obligation out of love for God and neighbor to correct our brothers and sisters when they're wrong. We love God, so we want others to be precise and accurate about what he has said in his word. And so we do not sit idly by even when our beloved brothers and sisters in the Lord misrepresent him and misrepresent his word. We love God, so we correct theological error. And we love our neighbor. So we want our fellow Christians, even of other traditions, to come to see what we have found in the word so that, that they can glorify God more, know him more deeply, walk more closely with him, and rejoice even more at his truth. We are under obligation then, both to God and man, to correct error when we see it. And this text that calls us to receive Christians outside of our group does not mean that we are to never correct theological, moral, or practical errors in one another. But we are to love and receive one another as Christians as we do it. Third, this text is not telling us that we must support everything that every other church or denomination does in ministry. We don't have to. We can disagree on whether or not something being done by a church is wise right, or biblical or honors Christ the way that it should. Y'all remember the egg drop fiasco five years ago, right? Some of you are grinning nervously, right? We don't have to agree with everything that every other church does. We don't have to support everything that every other church does. But if Jesus is being made much of, if people are being pointed to him, we should rejoice in that. We should rejoice in that as much as we can. And try not to hinder or discourage the work being done, even if we disagree with the approach. 
If Christ is being proclaimed, and look, I'm not saying that the approach doesn't matter. I'm saying we should say if Christ is lifted up and Christ is proclaimed, we can rejoice in that even if we think everything else should have been done differently. Stephen's going to read to you later Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, where the Apostle Paul says people are preaching the gospel because they want to get at me and make me feel bad. But I rejoice that they're preaching the gospel. They're doing it for the wrong reasons, is what Paul's saying. But nevertheless, Christ is being preached, and I'm glad for it. We should be able to look at other churches, and we say, dude, I disagree with everything that you're doing, but you are preaching Christ, and in that I am glad, though I want to correct everything else that you're doing. But we should be able to rejoice that Christ's name is being made much of. And fourth, this text is telling us to receive as our brothers and sisters those who love Christ and are following him and are making much of him. That we must do. If Jesus counts someone as his friend, if Jesus is going to reward them for the work done in his name, then we also must count them as on our team. And we must count them as our fellow partakers in the work of the kingdom. So then, I have three short things, and I promise they are short that I think we can begin to do practically to apply this text. And there's, there's really nothing that you're going to go out and do. These all have to do with our hearts, repentance, and prayer. First, wherever it is found, we need to repent of our pride, our mockery, and our immaturity towards our brothers and sisters of other orthodox, genuinely Christian traditions even if they do have some errors. But we need to repent of our mockery, pride, and immaturity toward those people. I'm not saying that bad doctrine should not be mocked, because it should. But there's a difference in mocking the error and mocking the person. We don't draw that line very well sometimes. I know I don't. But if you're guilty of looking down your nose at a Christian and despising them in your heart because they're not part of our group, then you must repent. And I would bet that many of us, especially those of us who consider ourselves serious students of theology, are guilty of these sins. And may God give us eyes to see that this is actually sin. It's not like, oh, you know, so-and-so is just kind of a jerk towards other denominations. No, it's actually sin. It's not a character flaw. It's actually sin. It's the sin of pride and hatred for our brothers and sisters. Come on. I'm preaching to myself here. You all know me. I'm preaching to myself here on this. We need to repent and ask the Lord Jesus for hearts to love and eyes to see his people, even his erring people, even his theologically juvenile people, the way that he does, so that we can love and receive them like him. So Christian, repent and look to Christ again. He died for our pride and sectarianism and denominational bigotry, just like he died for our other sins. Repent and believe on him afresh. Receive forgiveness and praise him for his grace towards you. Even though if you're right, you were still wrong in another way. He's still merciful. Second, we need discernment. We need to pray for discernment and wisdom with these matters. What do I mean? Well, we need to know where to draw the lines and where to be open and be willing to receive others. 
We need to know who to receive and who to reject. We need to know where the line is between heresy and error because there's a difference. Heresy will send you to hell. Error, that needs fixed, but that person can still be a Christian and maintain errors. We need wisdom to be able to see those differences. We need to know what attitude we should have towards each person and denomination who claims the name of Christ. We don't want to be too strict like the disciples were in our text, nor do we want to be so loose that we dishonor Christ and act as if truth doesn't matter. So we need wisdom. We need discernment. And so we need to pray to the God of all wisdom that he would help us to think clearly about these things so that we can honor him in receiving and loving the brethren while also guarding the truth with our lives. And lastly, we need to pray that God would help us to have a charitable attitude toward our fellow Christians outside of our tradition. We need to pray that God would help us to foster a spirit of evangelical unity towards other Christian groups. A unity where we recognize that we have fellowship with and should rejoice in those who share the same essential beliefs and preach the same gospel that we do. A unity where we recognize that we can disagree on the secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues that divide us into denominations and groups. We can disagree on those things while still gladly recognizing God's work of salvation and grace in one another. We need to pray that God would help us to foster a unity where we gladly accept one another because all love Christ, are not enemies of Christ, and are promoting his gospel and his kingdom. In all these things, we need God to help us and make us like our Lord. And so we must pray, and we must repent, and we must be diligent. And he will. He will help us because he's patient with us. So may God help us to be patient with him. For the one who is not against us is for us. May our God help us to receive that truth and love his people like he does. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word that, that cuts us open and shows us our sin. Lord, I'm sure I'm not the only one this evening that has felt the sting of your word. But Lord, you cut us open so that you might stitch us back up. You, you cut us open so that you might remove cancer and heal us. God, I pray that you would help us to love the brethren. Help us to see your people the way that you do. God, I pray that you would, as I've said many times this evening, Lord, help us um, to, to continue to love the truth and continue to know that your word matters and doctrine matters and there's a line between truth and error. Help us to love you so much that we cannot stand to see your word misrepresented, but Lord, at the same time, help us to love our brothers and sisters. Help us to receive those whom you receive as your own. Grant us repentance. Preserve us, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.